You've no doubt heard loads about the Good Friday Agreement over the past few weeks, but what exactly is in it? What specifically did it do? Well, let me explain. Let me explain with Sean Defoe, a News Talk original. Hello and welcome to the show. A lot of history around this week with the US President Joe Biden visiting Ireland to mark 25 years since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. And you can scroll back in your feeds now for our last episode, which looked at all the different security operations that have to go into place to keep a US president alive. It is quite something of an operation going down in Ireland this week. In the one you are listening to right now, though, we're talking Good Friday. Essentially, the dummy's guide to the Good Friday Agreement. I was four years old when it signed, so like a lot of younger people, didn't really know what was in it. I knew it brought peace, set up the institutions and so on, but the full detail wasn't really there. So if you want to be able to get through a conversation with older relatives and sound like you know what you're talking about, listen on. Studios of ITN, the early evening news with Dermot Murnahan. Good evening. Within the last few minutes, the parties involved in the Northern Ireland peace talks have reached an agreement. The dramatic announcement by the talks chairman, George Mitchell, followed a seesaw afternoon which saw the discussions hit serious trouble. The snag came with a split amongst the Ulster Unionists. There were angry words all round and a personal intervention by President Bill Clinton. But the difficulties over decommissioning were resolved to pave the way for an historic settlement. This was the statement from Mr Mitchell. This has been a truly uh, remarkable experience for me. And while I've engaged in many important public policy matters, I can say to you that never have I felt a sense of gratification and responsibility and gratitude that I feel today. The Good Friday Agreement was reached on the 10th of April 1998. A deadline was set for the night before, Holy Thursday, by the man you just heard, George Mitchell, but it ran ever so slightly over. The deal came about after around two years of negotiations between most of the main political parties in Northern Ireland and the British and Irish governments. There were some parties who did not negotiate and who didn't support it, like Ian Paisley's DUP, who walked out of the talks when Sinn Féin were included. Ultimately, the support of David Trimble's Ulster Unionist Party and some smaller Unionist parties was key in getting it over the line, while it also secured the backing of the SDLP and Sinn Féin on the Republican side. The document itself is actually rather short, like given how much weight it's had over the years. But the Good Friday Agreement is actually only about 35 pages long, including different annexes and notes. What is marked as page one is a declaration of support, a joint statement by all the parties who signed up to it saying the deal was a truly historic opportunity for a new beginning in Northern Ireland. And it notes those parties have continuing and equally legitimate political aspirations that are really substantially different. Like, it doesn't ask Unionists and Republicans to pretend they want the same thing for Northern Ireland long term, but that they will make every effort towards reconciliation and to work together democratically despite those differences. We were prepared relentlessly to just stay up through the night and keep going. Ultimately, it was just determination to drive this thing through. I mean, we, we were agreeing something that six months ago nobody believed was possible. At some point, it had to stop. At some point, the violence had to stop. 
we were taking big risks as two democratic governments. Um, you know, to what extent should democratic governments be talking to terrorists when they still had a big arsenal? The next part of the agreement is about constitutional issues. The heading sounds quite boring, but it's arguably the most important part of the future of Northern Ireland, because this is the section spelling out how a united Ireland would come about. It says that both the British and Irish governments must respect the will of the majority of people in Northern Ireland. As of 1998, that majority was very clearly to remain part of the United Kingdom, and polling would suggest that's still the case, with a December poll for the Irish Times suggesting just 27% of people in Northern Ireland would vote for a united Ireland, with 50% against, 18% undecided, and 5% not voting at all. But were that position to change in the future, the Good Friday Agreement says that Northern Ireland has the right to self-determination. In other words, if a majority of both people in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland vote for it, there can be a united Ireland, which the UK government would have to respect. This section also included changes to legislation in the UK and the constitution in Ireland, with the Irish government having to drop a constitutional claim to the territory of Northern Ireland. But well, we had to proceed and find a way forward. It was just as simple as that. We had to find a way forward. You could feel it in the air, actually inside castle buildings. Paisley done us a favour because it made loyalism and unionism more determined than ever that we needed to reach this agreement. Any of us who were talking to each other were all saying, how do you read Trimble? Is he going to be up for anything or not? And he said to me, no, look, I completely understand, he said. I need to go back to my people with a big red slap on my face that you guys have given me and say, look what you've created. After that, the meat of the deal was the three strands. Strand one dealt with governance in Northern Ireland. Strand two was North-South bodies. And strand three was East-West cooperation i.e. between Dublin and London. Let's start with Strand 1. Good Friday set up how Northern Ireland was to be governed through the Stormont Assembly and Executive. The Assembly is elected members like RTDs and they're called MLAs. Then the Executive is the Cabinet, effectively ministers, including a First and a Deputy First Minister. What's different here, though, is the cross-community element of things. For example, most votes on a new bill, a new piece of legislation, are passed by a basic majority. However, on some issues, important things like the budget, for example, there may be cross-community approval required. A majority of unionists and a majority of nationalists need to back it. It's not enough to have a simple majority. Each MLA confirms, when elected, what identity they want, unionist, nationalist or other. And this continues into the allocation of ministries. The largest party gets the first minister role. The second largest party from another community gets the deputy first minister role. And until the last election, that's always been a unionist first minister and a Republican deputy first minister. But now, were an executive to be formed, it would actually be the other way around. The last election was the first time that Sinn Féin uh, won the largest number of seats. And so we often refer to Michelle O'Neill as the first minister designate. Ministries then are divided on a de Hunt basis. Basically, that means if you have more MLAs, you have more ministries. It favours the bigger parties, but means that smaller ones as well can get access to the executive, depending on how many seats and a minimum requirement and all that. Strand 2 
of the deal was the North-South Ministerial Council, basically bringing together ministers from North and South of the border, the different governments there, to cooperate on their respective briefs. The Health Minister in the North meets the Health Minister in the Republic of Ireland and, and so on. The last one of those was in July 2021, and this council obviously doesn't sit when there is no executive in Northern Ireland, so it hasn't met since then, or as there are no ministers to meet. It is meant to meet twice a year, once in Dublin and once in Armagh. That's what the tradition has become, even though they, they can move about and have moved about in the past. But in the 25 years since Good Friday, there's only been 26 plenary meetings due to the executive being down at various points for various reasons. Strand 3 is the British-Irish side. It set up the British-Irish Council, which is a meeting of members of the government's of Ireland, the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and sometimes others like the Isle of Man and the Channel Islands. And it's been taken with various degrees of seriousness over the years, a recent one in Blackpool getting the most attention in quite some time when both Michal Martin and Rishi Sunak attended British Prime Ministers, tending not to go to this particular function. They send a, a minister instead, quite often Michael Gove in, in recent years. Other forums then for British and Irish politicians were set up, like the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference, which uh, are meetings chaired by the Irish Foreign Affairs Minister and the Northern Ireland Secretary of State. In other words, organisations to get people talking north-south, uh, east-west, and everyone communicating with each other to iron out any potential issues that might ever come up. You can't simply agree this with the British because the Unionists will want something more. The whole point of the Good Friday Agreement was to make politics in Northern Ireland boring. Maybe is that justice will be done, but perhaps not in this area. The next few pages of the agreement talk about equality, freedom of expression and belief, reconciliation, and responding to the victims of violence before getting to the issue of decommissioning. Armed paramilitaries giving up their weapons. It says all participants in the deal will do their best to ensure all paramilitary groups have disarmed within two years of the passing of the needed referendums on the Good Friday Agreement and to working with the independent commission which had been set up for decommissioning. And I thought it was interesting, I interviewed Bertie Hearn recently and asked what the one regret he had about the Belfast Good Friday Agreement was and getting decommissioning done faster was his answer. It was 2005 before it was judged by that independent commission, the IRA had put all weapons beyond use well past the initial deadline set. And the issue did cause the collapse of Stormont for a while when David Trimble pulled out of the executive. A reduction in the number and scale of British armed forces in Northern Ireland was agreed to in the deal, as was an independent commission on policing that was set up, which ultimately led to the creation of the PSNI. And then an issue as thorny as decommissioning. The release of prisoners locked up for their role in the Troubles. Both governments agreed to put in place measures to release prisoners affiliated to organisations who were observing the ceasefire. Obviously, a highly emotive issue as some of those people had done awful things and one that was very tough for the families of those killed and injured, but one ultimately that was passed. The Good Friday Belfast Agreement is a relatively short document with a lot in it and it's interesting because you always hear particularly people in Northern Ireland particularly the Secretary of State refer to it as the Good Friday Belfast Agreement and there's an interesting story that Bertie Ahern tells in uh, his podcast As I Remember It which he's done with new stuff that's worth a listen if you want a bit more detail into the negotiation part from the people who were actually there 
But he tells the story that, you know, a while after it had, uh, it had been agreed and the document had gone away, he noticed the British side had sort of put a cover on it, calling it the, the Belfast Agreement. And he sort of put in a few calls and was like, well, who, who agreed to that? I didn't agree to that, calling it the Belfast Agreement. And so he started calling it on the Irish side the Good Friday Agreement rather than the Belfast Agreement. And so to be diplomatic, you quite often hear, again, people from the US a lot, but also in Northern Ireland, people refer to it as the Good Friday Belfast Agreement because each government sort of refers to it as something a little bit different as the, the, the common or the most used parlance. Look, it's a deal, it's far from perfect, and as several people involved in making the deal have said, it hasn't yet lived up to its full potential. I think that's fair, but it has secured, for the most part, 25 years of peace, something which one time seemed impossible thanks for listening and again if you want to check out that news talk original podcast as i remember it there's some really really interesting stuff there certainly a lot of bits that i didn't know about the good friday agreement until listening to it sean defoe presenting and researching this week john kill is the editor with lock and heart on sound and i will chat to you very soon